0: This is WCNY's The Capital Press Room, and we're continuing our examination of long COVID, the lingering fallout from the acute phase of the pandemic, which is impacting countless New Yorkers days, months, and years after initially contracting the virus. In response to this problem, a collaboration of the University at Buffalo, UBMD, and regional partners have gotten together to launch Western New York's first long COVID center, and we're going to explore what they're doing and how they plan on doing it with the help of the center's co-directors, Dr. Sanjay Seti and Dr. Jennifer Abeliz. Thanks so much for making the time, doctors.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: So what was the impetus for creating a long COVID center, the first of its kind in Western New York?
1: Well, we really saw the need. There were all these individuals who were clearly having manifestations of long COVID. There was no center that was systematically addressing the problem. And uh, so that's what drove us to to set up this uh, the center.
2: We actually started... Um... In Western New York, specifically because there is no long COVID center here, and we actually started with a registry to try and gauge the number of individuals who have long COVID so that we would know who we were reaching out to and what their needs would be.
0: Well, Dr. Seti, you said that these people were clearly manifesting long COVID, but what we've heard in previous conversations about this is that long COVID is hard to diagnose. So what are the symptoms of long COVID that uh, you were saying in the region?
1: There is no one diagnostic test for the disease. So yes, it is hard to diagnose in that sense that you can't nail it down. But when you have individuals who've had a clear change in their functions, their symptoms, what they're experiencing, and that clearly was associated after COVID came and went away. You know, after they're three months off, out, they're still experiencing symptoms that are persistent, then that's the kind of general definition we are using for long COVID. That's what I meant when I said that there were clearly people who are experiencing these problems. Is there an easy test to diagnose it and say, this is it? No, we don't have that as yet.
0: Well, what about the other side of the equation, the treatment of long COVID? How are you approaching that? And is there a clear and comprehensive way to address long COVID?
1: I I, know I always like to say we are building the bridge as we are walking on it. And it's not just us. It's happening across the country, across the world. The whole entity is getting understood as we actually look at these patients. In fact, our patients are helping us to understand what to do with it. In terms of treatments, yes, we are a long way off in terms of, you know, specific treatments that are that are curative for this problem. But we're trying to understand that. And as treatments come along, we want to be able to offer them to our patients. But we are doing some things in the interim.
2: So things that we're identifying that were interesting, to start with is that a lot of the individuals coming to the Long COVID Center had already seen a large number of specialists. They had taken upon themselves to do their own research and engage themselves with cardiologists, pulmonologists, neurologists. So where we initially thought we would need to engage patients with specialists, we found that the patients had taken care of that. So we evolved and said, okay, now what do they need? And we noticed that there were a lot of complaints of brain fog fatigue, shortness of breath with exertion, or even at rest. Those were huge complaints from a multitude of patients. So thinking about that, we evolved and said, let's get physical therapy and occupational therapy involved. Occupational therapy looks at a patient in terms of what engages their daily life. And we had wonderful conversations with members of the UB department in how they approach a patient from that rehab perspective of seeing where are they having deficits and what do we need to make stronger both physically and mentally, helping their cognitive function, helping them reorganize how they set their day so that they can be productive and doing things they need to do, even if it's just their ADLs, because it's really hard to go from being a functional person, getting an infection, and then in the end coming out and not feeling like yourself.
1: We also engage Buffalo Urban League, and from with them we have a social worker in the mix now, and a community health worker. And there we are trying to address the issues of mental health, um, you know, providing counseling, uh, providing other forms of social support, especially those to those individuals who are experience health disparities and they have limited resources.
0: Well, Dr. Abley, as you talk about the person who's seen specialists, they've been very engaged in their health. I can't imagine that that represents everyone who has long COVID. So how do you reach out to those people who might be either ignoring their symptoms or aren't proactively getting all of the help that they might need that the long COVID center might offer?
2: So that is a great question, because one of the goals of the Long COVID Center here in Western New York is to engage everyone. And we found that a lot of the people who initially found us were people of of more means, more education, who had the knowledge and ability to reach out and get the help. So we actually engaged with the Buffalo Urban League so that we're reaching out to all individuals, people of health disparities, financial disparities, educational disparities, getting the information out that long COVID exists. People don't know to reach out for help with long COVID if they don't even know that that's something that they could have. So getting community health workers out into the population, into the libraries, into the churches, into different groups that aren't being reached by our current efforts has been a very strong focus of this group. We also have a registry that we've started with, and that's been going on now for more than a year, where we just put online, through the media, mostly newspaper um, and locally, that we have a long COVID registry and for people just to engage by signing up with the registry, review that registry on a daily basis, and then invite those individuals to come and be seen at the long COVID recovery center.
1: And then registry actually works both ways. We also send them monthly newsletters, update them about what's going on about COVID. So, and then and the registry is relatively easy to engage in. It's online and it's, you know, and, and, and people do it on the computers or on the cell phones and they can, uh, you know, we've translated that to Spanish. So we are trying to get as many people aware of the problem as we go along, um, as, we, as we as we go along with the center.
0: Well, for listeners just joining us, let me reintroduce you. Uh, you're listening to the Capitol Press Room and we're speaking with the co-directors of the Western New York Long COVID Center, Dr. Sanjay Setti and Dr. Jennifer Abeliz. What is the capacity of the center in terms of the number of tr- patients that you might be able to treat as well as the, I guess, severity of the cases that you're able to deal with as opposed to referring them to other outlets for treatment?
2: In terms of capacity, I mean, we're open daily, five days a week from you know nine to four. So far we've seen over a um, hundred patients since starting in June. There's really no limitation on the level of care that we can provide in the sense that we are part of the university. So we can see patients who have very few symptoms of long COVID to people who are now in a wheelchair from long COVID because we do have the resources, we do have the university behind us, and we do have all of the specialists available to us so we can really adapt a treatment plan for individuals based on their needs. We actually meet on a weekly basis and discuss every case with the whole team. Myself, Dr. Sethi, PT, OT, social work, our nurse practitioner, we have a Zoom call and we go over everybody's case and make sure we're meeting those patients' needs and then still follow up with them as well to ensure that they are getting an improvement from the treatment we have given them.
0: Is that type of individualized attention though possible if you double or, or triple in size
2: yes uh, yeah I, I, there's I, no
0: There's no limit to well,
1: i i agree but you know i think eventually what we want to do uh, and I, I would say that uh, eventually what we want to do right now yes we haven't reached capacity but you know that could happen but um, eventually what we want to do is take our experience and encapsulate that into something that we can train then other physicians to do so if you know if, if the, everybody with long COVID, if we believe the projections, yes, that uh, it were to come for care to us, we obviously would not be able to handle that. But then what we want to do is, you know, encapsulate our experiences, put it into, and, and start educating other pe- folks. We are right now educating patients, but we also would like to educate practitioners. So that's something that we want to do as we go along. Uh, so that we, became, we can disseminate what we are doing to, to, to other individuals, um, to other practitioners. The, another essential part of the center uh, is to try to get these people into research studies. I mean, literally, the only way we're gonna figure out long COVID is by th- from clinical trials and new therapeutics, or even just studies to understand the disease, you know. And once that's the only way really forward, so patients actually have to be participating. When they come to the center, they don't, they're do not they not participating in research, but we will be and are offering any kind of uh, research opportunities that exist to both the registry and clinic patients, because that really is the only way forward to solve this problem.
0: Well, Dr. Setti, you talk about using your experience at the center to inform how other people might treat patients with long COVID is there anything that you guys are are building upon? Are there studies that you can utilize, or are you essentially treading new ground here?
1: So I would say, for example, one of our neurologists is studying low-dose lithium. So we referred patients to him. That was from the registry and a few from the clinic. Uh, That is mainly for the brain fog manifestations. Uh, There will be other studies that will be uh, really to do the studies, you have to do randomized control trials. You know, you have to do the gold standard to really get the best information possible. And, uh, you know, as and when they become available in our area, we're trying to bring them in. Uh, We're in conversations with the recover initiative with the NIH to see if we can bring in one of the studies that's looking at feeding brain fog. And, And in addition to that, when we are sending our patients to their uh, occupation and physical therapy, we're not putting them in a trial, but we're very carefully collecting the data at baseline and, and also when they follow up with us to really understand if that if that effort has made any difference in in, in their, their experience with long covid
0: And after a quick break, we'll have more with the co-directors of the Western New York Long COVID Center, which is a collaboration of the University at Buffalo, UBMD, and regional partners.
1: for the Capitol Press Room provided by the New York State AFL-CIO, a federation of 3,000 unions fighting for working people by keeping New York State Union strong. Visit unionstrongny.org for more information.
0: For listeners just joining us, we're continuing our discussion with the co-directors of Western New York's first long COVID center, Dr. Sanjay Sethi and Dr. Jennifer Abeliz. Have you received any guidance from state or federal health initiatives with this center?
1: Not really. There is not specific guidance available. As I said, all of us are still learning as we go along. We keep up with the literature. We keep on looking for things that tell us what to do or what not to do. But if you really, at this point, everyone is doing the best they can, given the circumstances they have. We make sure that if there is a suspicion, you know, we are actually quite happy if we find something else to explain the symptoms, because then that is treatable. Mm -hmm. There are instances of that, that people come with fatigue and they had undiagnosed sleep apnea, and then we treat them. I've had patients with, you know, respiratory symptoms and seems like they had developed a form of asthma, which responded to asthma treatment. So things like those, if you find, we look for those and we try to manage them. But there is still a large group of individuals and where we don't find alternative explanations. And those individuals is where we are offering these therapies, you know, the the rehab kind of individualized rehab approach. And those are the individuals we like to put into trials, well-done, well-conducted trials or well-designed trials to really address and develop new therapeutics.
0: Well, does the lack of guidance from federal or state health officials represent a failing of our public health system? Or is this not the type of thing that we should expect our government health officials to be helping steer and that it should fall to private institutions and nonprofit collaborations to find the answers and to help steer the search for answers?
1: It would be a failure if there were well-defined approaches. You know, there was a very well-defined approach that, that they could proscribe and say please follow this so that's why i don't think it's a failure ultimately this is going to fall on to you know nih and uh, and and academic institutions and and you know to to really sort this out in terms of both understanding the problem and and treating it and you know there are there's a lot going on every every we have no problems filling a newsletter with exciting news and 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 studies Again, none of them are definitive. It takes time to get to the definitive studies, but you can already see that there's a lot of effort going on. There is a lot of financial investment from the NIH to fund studies, uh, you know, to attack long COVID. It brings me back to those HIV days, you know, when they really spend money on HIV and see where we are. So I I firmly do believe, uh, you know, that yes, people are suffering now, but I really anticipate that with all the effort going in, that in the next Two, three years, we'll come out with you know potential treatments that work, and and which will get better over the years.
0: So you feel like these efforts aren't being siloed, so to speak, that one hand doesn't necessarily know what the other is doing, and that could be overcome with either state coordination or federal coordination to ensure that there aren't duplicative efforts and that people are made aware of the breakthroughs in Buffalo as well as elsewhere in the state or the world. Because, you know, we often hear about the idea of coordination, and you guys have talked about how you want to help make people aware of what you're doing, but, you know, does it take a higher up authority to actually lead that initiative, or can that come from the ground level in Western New York?
1: At least I can speak to the research point of view from that. And the NIH actually was very particular. They set up this recover initiative. I'm sure you must have seen news, you know, the news. It's been in the news. So this was a multi-center initiative where they've assembled cohorts. We tried to be part of the initiative, but we were not selected at that time. So that's why we did this thing on our own. But that initiative is across many, many centers. And they're launching multiple studies across those centers the only thing I feel is, yes, that if you're not one of those centers, it's more difficult to get your patients in those studies, but we are we are talking to them. So the federal research coordination is there. Could there be better federal and state coordination potentially? but it's not there as yet. Well,
0: Dr. Abelis, do you view this center as a permanent fixture in? the public health response for Western New York, or is this something that you hope can be phased out in a few years as the treatments and diagnoses are uh, just replicated say in local doctor's offices or around the state and you're not needing this sort of intensive approach?
2: Yeah, I definitely agree that this is something that will probably phase out over time. In this initial few years as we're all learning And trying to figure out the right treatments kind of building that bridge as we go, we need this local center, because it takes funding to support all of this and the university has really helped to support the registry and then we have applied for other funding. So as we learn, we're going to teach, we're going to teach all of the local doctors, and this is going to become incorporated into the education of doctors as they go through medical school residency, and this is going to become the norm. Just like Dr. Sethi said, like with HIV, when it first started, nobody knew what to do. And now you have different HIV centers that are the expert places to go. Um, But if you go to any doctor and you talk about HIV, we all know the relative treatment. We all know where to send people to get that very specialized treatment. Until we have that in place across the world, right now we need a specialized center to help funnel the patients in, evaluate the patients, and try to provide them with therapy that is going to help them, prove that it helps them, and then disseminate that information to all of the providers in our community and beyond.
0: Well, finally, is there an argument to be made that you shouldn't ever retire the center, that it should be left standing to evolve, to address whatever public health concerns might present themselves in the future. So you don't have to stand up uh, a new partnership whenever the next public health emergency happens so that we won't be caught flat footed so that, hey, we got this great entity out in Buffalo. Uh, they take a really uh, individualized approach to problems and uh, they're stood up and, and ready to go. Dr. Seti and Dr. Abeles, they've, they've gone through this before. Let's, let's send it over to them now. Is there a possible evolution for the center?
1: Uh, I would say in the ideal world, yes, but you know, the reality is this it does take money to sustain it and time to sustain it. Um, I you know, we definitely have a clear need. So for for now, we have Mother Cabrini for supporting us, but that support is, you know, until the end of until the middle of next year, but we're gonna find different ways to sustain it. Um I I, I, I guess so. I, you know, people we worry about the next pandemic and its consequences, which may or may not be the same, may be different. Um, but I think, uh, you know, I, I, think a lot of care should evolve to be multidisciplinary anyway, and, and should be, you know, should be of this form. Unfortunately, it's not, um, in the ideal world. Yes, we should have these kind of centers always ready to deal with difficult problems, complex patients, but in reality, yes, does it, you know, we've got to find the, 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 the resources and the
2: time. Ultimately, Dr. Sethi is always going to be a pulmonologist. I'm going to always be, um, a med-peds doctor we're here we're not going anywhere so if the center closes down because there's not a need and a new center is needed we have that experience we have that breadth of knowledge we still have ub we have ubmd and i think if we ever had to do this again with the experience we would be able to do it if not teach it to different doctors that may be younger than us that want to take on a need that they see in the community. So I don't think all is lost if we can't keep this center open, because again, the experiences that we're getting are only allowing us to grow as physicians, and we'll be able to give that knowledge on to the next group, which is what we do at the university.
0: Well, we've been speaking with the co-directors of Western New York's first Long COVID Center, Dr. Jennifer Abelis. Thank you so much for making the time. Thank you. And Dr. Sanjay Sethi, thank you as well.
2: Uh,
1: Thank you.
0: And for more Capital Press Room content, visit capitalpressroom.org or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. And if you listen to us from an Apple device, make sure to leave us a rating and a review so it helps other people find the show. Support for Capital Press Room provided by the William G. Pomeroy Foundation. Communities across the Empire State have stories to tell. A roadside marker funded by the William G. Pomeroy Foundation can help your town or city educate the public, encourage pride of place, and promote local tourism. More about the Pomeroy Foundation's New York State Historic Marker Grant Program for 501c3 organizations, nonprofit academic institutions, and local, state, and federal government entities at WGPFoundation.org.